would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. And if you're liking, if you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you to follow along uh, what I'll be reading, you can find it on page 910 and going on to the top of page 911. We're going to be looking at Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22 is where I will begin reading. This is Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and that you would help us to see wonderful, true things from your word. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for those who have not yet put their trust in you. And for all of us, Father, we pray that you would encourage us with this wonderful reminder that Jesus Christ is risen. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. And he helps us this morning to be clear. What we are here to celebrate this morning, this resurrection that we are here to remember and to proclaim and to celebrate, is the most important thing in the world for us today. We're not talking this morning about Easter bunnies. And colored Easter eggs and delightful candy and beautiful spring dresses and new ties. All of those things are wonderful. But we are here this morning to remember and to believe and to celebrate what is the very most important thing in the world. Because if it's not true, Paul says, then we are still in our sins and we of all people are the most to be pitied. Because there is no hope. No hope for us in this life or in death. So it does make sense, doesn't it, that when God called on the Apostle Peter to preach the very first sermon to the New Testament church, that his theme, his topic, his text would be the resurrection. That he would talk about the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And what he said through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are told, cut to the heart of the people in such a way that over 3,000 people put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and were added to the membership of the church. Today, what I want us to do in our time together is to reflect on Peter's sermon. The reasons that he gives to us for why we should believe the resurrection and the results that he tells us that come because of the resurrection. And then finally, the response that is called for because of the resurrection. So first of all, what does he tell us in this sermon about the reasons for why we should believe the resurrection? He begins in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He begins by reminding them that Jesus was truly a man. He came from a place. That place was called Nazareth. They would have known that place. It would have been familiar to them. And he was a man, Peter says. But he was not only a man because he goes on to say in verse 22 that he was attested by God. That means that he was proven, that he was demonstrated, that he was shown to be true. And Peter says how God showed him to be true 
It was through Jesus' mighty words, works, and His wonders and His signs. All of those things that He did through Jesus publicly in the midst of the people that they saw and experienced. This Jesus was not only a man from a place, He was also, as He claimed to be, God. God proved that through the miracles and the wonders and the sign. One of the purpose of miracles is to prove the truth of what the miracle worker says. And Jesus said, not only was He fully man, but that He was one with the Father, that He was equal with God Himself, that He was God, that He had existed before time, and that He would rise from the grave. Here's our first reason that we ought to believe the resurrection, because Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was true to His Word. He said He was God. He said He would rise. And indeed He did. He gives us another reason why we ought to believe the resurrection in verses 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Another reason why we ought to believe the resurrection is because the fact that it is by the most powerful being in the created universe, the sovereign creator of the universe. Jesus was delivered up according to God's sovereign plan and wicked men crucified and killed him. But Peter says the grave was not able to hold him. Death had no power over him. It's not possible for death to hold him because the power of God is more powerful than death itself. Here's another reason that we are to believe the resurrection. We're not talking about some impossible task that is left to the ingenuity and power of a finite man. We're talking about a supernatural event that was accomplished by the sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe. Peter gives them a third reason why they ought to believe the resurrection. He gives it in verses 25 through 31 and then also down in verses 34 through 35. Notice in your passages that you have in front of you that if you have the Bibles open in front of you, you'll notice that those passages are offset. That's to let us know that Peter is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from two different passages Uh, in verses 25 through verse 28. He's quoting from Psalm 16. And then in verses 34 and 35, he's quoting from Psalm 110. Both of those were written by David about a thousand years before Jesus was walking on the planet. And in Psalm 16, David was predicting that one would come who would not die, who would not see decay, who would not see corruption, but who would rise. And in Psalm 110, David spoke of one greater than himself, whom God had said would be at God's right hand. And then notice what Peter does. He, he helps us to understand these passages because in verses 29 and 30 and 31, he, he gives us the understanding of what David was doing. Peter says in those verses, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David... He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. We know, Peter says, that David in Psalm 116 and Psalm 110 was not speaking about himself. He died, he was buried, his tomb is right over here. We can go look at his bones if you want to. Instead, Peter says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was talking about the true and the better and the greater David who would come after him, Jesus Christ himself. Peter's giving us this incredible lesson on how we are to read our Bibles. The entire Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation is either pointing us forward to our Savior or back to him. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But here is a reason for us to believe the resurrection, the witness of the scriptures. The whole story of the Bible has told us about Jesus and the fact that he would come and that he would die and that he would rise again from the grave and conquer death. But it's not just the witness of Scripture. Peter also talks about the witness of the apostles. He says that in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, he says. The apostles and others were witnesses to the events They had seen and interacted with Jesus after he had come back from the dead. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. As he was speaking to the church there, he reminded them, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Here's another reason for believing in the resurrection. We have the witness of Scripture that has told us from beginning to end about Christ and His resurrection. And we also have the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. And lastly, Paul, Peter gives another reason for the resurrection in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We didn't read it, but the first part of, or the part right before uh, the passage that we read... Uh, Peter stands among the apostles and among the crowd and begins to address the fact of the Holy Spirit that has come down on the people and has caused the people to be able to speak in all of these different languages. And they're wondering what has happened. And Peter is telling them, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit. He had said he would do it. That once he had died and was buried and rose again from the grave, And ascended into heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit down on you. And now it's happened in your midst, Peter says. It's another reason to believe the resurrection. Jesus said it would happen, and now it's happening right now in your midst. Peter's giving them all of these reasons why they should believe the resurrections and I why, why they should believe the resurrection and I, I I completely understand that there are many today, and perhaps even some in this room, that would say that was great for them. That was great for these first century people. But us? We're more sophisticated. We live in a pluralistic society. We've we've done away with those idea of moral absolutes or absolute truth. We, We adapt what we believe to the pluralism around us. 
But I want you to reflect on the fact that the society that we live in is no more pluralistic than the one in which Peter was speaking. Peter was speaking in Jerusalem and he was speaking mostly to the Jews. And if you know your Bibles, and in particularly the Old Testament, then you know that almost all of the history of God's people in the Old Testament was about them being in a land of pluralism. From the time that they were in Egypt, even until the Promised Land, as they were surrounded by the nations, they were in one of the most pluralistic places on the planet. But even Peter writing where he is and when he is, he's writing in the context of the Greco-Roman world, which dominated the entire uh, aspect and, and, and area that Paul was writing in, or Peter was writing in. And that Greco-Roman worldview was pluralism to the extreme. And notice, Peter doesn't give in to it. Peter says, this is true. This is right. This is what you are to believe in. Christianity claims to be true, the one true explanation of what is wrong in this world and the only true solution to that problem. Peter's saying it's either right or it's wrong. It can't just be true for some and not for others. It's not just an idea, a nice idea for us to philosophize about. But this is indeed the truth. Believe it, he says. It's right and true because we have reasons to believe it. But notice he also gives them some pictures of the results of the resurrection. And I want you to reflect on these things this morning as results from the resurrection that are incredibly encouraging to those of you who believe this morning. Notice he mentions a couple things of the results for Jesus himself. In verses 32 and verses 33, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. One of the results of the resurrection for Jesus was that he was ascended to the right hand of God. He was given that place of authority and strength and power and greatness. In Peter's mind, the resurrection and his ascension were tied together. And not only that, but we're told that another result of the resurrection was that he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised that he would get, he would have the Holy Spirit and that he would send the Holy Spirit out. And he was able to do that as a result of the resurrection. But Peter's not telling them just simply the results for Jesus, that he was exalted and that he received the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this morning the incredible encouragement that there is here as we reflect on the results of the resurrection for those who are in faith in Christ. As the people began to hear what Peter was saying in verse 38, in verse 37, they, they wondered, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. Here's one of the wonderful results of the resurrection. Jesus conquered both the power and the penalty of sin. So that those who are in Christ, who have faith in Christ, receive the forgiveness of their sins because Jesus rose and conquered them. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, as Paul said, we would still be in our sins. We would still be guilty for our sins. Because the cross without an empty tomb means Jesus was either a liar or a crazy man. But thanks be to God, Peter says, 
Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, all those in him have their sins forgiven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, meditate on that reality. Your sins, past, present, and future, if you are in Christ and trusting in him, are forgiven forever. Our family on Saturday nights has a habit of doing pizza and a movie night. And we had everybody home last night, which was a great blessing. And we decided to watch, uh, for some of us again, some of us for the first time, the movie Silence. It was a movie back in 2016 that came out that talked about uh, the spread of Christianity into the land of Japan. And the movie particularly was focused on the persecution of the Christian missionaries who went to Japan. And in that movie, I think one of the most important, the most important people in the movie is not only uh, the, uh, the missionaries who go to stand up to the persecution and to seek to win people to Christ, but it's the guide who leads the missionaries to the island or to the place of Japan. He's a man who is full of sin. He's a man who struggles with being drunk. He's a man who is often double-minded, giving in to his temptations. It reminds us a lot of perhaps maybe even how Peter was at times. And this man over and over again would fall and give in and deny the Lord. And then he would inevitably come back at some point in the movie to the missionaries and, and ask them to forgive him. And it was, in some ways, a wonderful picture of how God forgives us when we come to Him in faith, trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ over and over again. But it was also this picture of this misunderstanding on the part of this servant. Because he believed that if he could just come to these missionaries, that they could forgive him of his sins and give him forgiveness. But what Peter is telling us today is that if you are in Christ, then your sins have been forgiven, not by the pastor, not by the church, but by the Savior. And He has forgiven you your sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. It's a wonderful reminder of the simplicity of the gospel, of God's grace, that by faith, you can have the forgiveness of your sins once and for all. There's another aspect, another result of the resurrection that's in a great encouragement to us. It's in verse 24. Not only does Peter remind us that we have forgiveness of our sins as a result of the resurrection, but look at what he says in verse 24. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here's another result of the resurrection. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is good news. The pangs of death are loosed. Now that word pangs is not a word that we use very often anymore in English. It literally means a sudden sharp pain. So sometimes we talk about hunger pangs, the pains that come when we're super hungry. 
In Greek, it had an even more specific sense. The word that is used here, that Peter spoke, has the idea of the pains that accompany childbirth. Labor pains. And Peter is using this illustration. And he's saying that death, in a a, a certain sense, is like a woman who is in the pains of labor, unable to hold the arrival of the child back. The, The arrival of the child and the pain is inevitable. But Peter says, even though death is like that, it is inevitable. And it brings us incredible pain. That what is inevitable for man is conquered by God. That because the resurrection is true, God has loosed the pains and defeated the inevitable. Death itself and its effects are defeated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are incredible implications about that for us today. Think about what that means about our own deaths. Our death is not the end if you are in Christ Jesus. It is only the transition to eternal life. It is natural. It is is normal for death to be scary to us. There is an unknown about it. But if you are in Christ this morning, there is nothing to fear. What comes next is secured and is comforting and it is glorious and it gives us incredible hope. As hard and as painful and as difficult as this life might be, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that what comes will make what we experience in this life pale in comparison. A day is coming that will make all of the pain and the sufferings and the difficulty seem like nothing to us. So if you're here this morning and you are dealing with suffering and you are dealing with pain, whether in body or in heart, there is hope. What you are experiencing is not forever. And what is coming and what is sure will make what you're experiencing now pale in comparison. Another implication is not just for our own personal deaths, but what this means for the reality of the brokenness of the world that we live in. All of that which is in our world that is broken and damaged and not right, whether because of my own sin or simply because of the results of the fall, will be undone. What incredible hope and encouragement for us it is as we look and experience the difficulties and the brokenness and the effects of the fall to know that in Christ the pangs of death have been loosed. They no longer have ultimate hold on us. Oh, there may be a time for us in this life when we have to endure hurt and grief and experience the consequences of the brokenness of this world. But brothers and sisters in Christ, it will not last. It will not impact us or those that we love forever. And a day is coming when we will be put back together and made whole and the damage will be reversed and we will be healed And maybe in a way which we can't explain or understand that will make us even better than we were before. This is the sure and certain result of the resurrection. The hope that we have. Lastly, what's the response that's appropriate to the resurrection? 
Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Proper response is to believe, to know for certain. And this belief that you are to have is not just about God in general, but about a person in specific. Because he says specifically, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who works and secures our salvation. He is the one who provides forgiveness for our sins. It is only through Jesus do we get our sins forgiven and his righteousness credited to our accounts. He is our Savior. He is our Christ. He is our Messiah. He is also our Lord. He is our sovereign authority and King. And He demands and deserves our full allegiance that we would follow Him in loving obedience. Peter says believe. Not just in God in general, but believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also says, believe in God's grace, that our standing before God is all grace. It's not what we do or what we accomplish. It is God's grace. When Peter was seeking to prove the resurrection, where did he go? He went to the Old Testament and he showed that it pointed to Jesus. Peter was showing us that Jesus was the true and the better David. We see that throughout the scriptures when John the Baptist arrived on the scene. What did he say? Here comes Jesus, the true and better Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the whole earth. The author to the book of Hebrews, his entire book is about proving how Jesus is the better and the greater of the Old Testament. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better high priest. He is the true and better tabernacle. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 says Jesus is the true and better Adam. And Jesus himself said that he was the true and better Jonah. The point that the scriptures give us is that the whole Bible points us to Jesus as the one who secures our redemption. We are not accepted and forgiven and adopted into God's family by what we do or our accomplishments or how holy we are. It is purely and completely by God's grace. Christianity is not about what we accomplish to earn God's acceptance. It's about believing in Jesus who does the work for us and then credits us with his faith and good works. This is what we're supposed to believe. And you know that it's truly getting into your soul when we respond as they did. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The word cut here means pierced, stabbed. And the heart is the core of the being. It's the essence of who we are. It's our mind. It's our intellect. It's our imagination. It's our emotion. It's our will. It's all of it. And the more that this gospel of grace, this more of our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ grips our heart and cuts our heart, we will respond in the way that we're seeing here in this passage. It's kind of like what happened when Peter denied Jesus for the third time. And we're told in one of the Gospels that Peter looked up and Jesus was looking at him. See, Peter realized that he hadn't just denied the Lord. He hadn't just disobeyed God's word. He had broken Jesus' heart. And that cut him. It cut him to his heart. 
There has to be a point in which all of these things that Peter is saying in these verses has to be real for you. It has to be personal for you. It has to get to the point where this is what you truly believe in your heart of hearts. Understanding that your sin not only offended a holy God, but it broke His heart. I grab the attention of the young people here in the congregation just for a second. One of the wonderful blessings of growing up in the church and having Christian parents, Christian grandparents, Christian people in the church is that you get to hear all these wonderful truths. But you need to understand that there must come a time when you say, this isn't just what my parents have taught me. This is what I believe. This is true because I believe it's true. I know the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. And He rose again from the grave. And I believe it. That's true for all of us. We all must be cut to the heart. And once we are cut to the heart, we will truly be changed. Peter goes on to tell them, you should repent, you should change, you should turn. Turn from uh, from your sin and from your unrighteousness and turn to obey and to trust the Savior. Turn away from your old way of life and turn to this new way of life of following the Lord in faithful, loving obedience. Be baptized, he says. Get that outward sign of the allegiance that you have for your Savior. Receive as a gift the Holy Spirit, he goes on to say. And then lastly, notice what he says. As they would be changed, that they would treat other people differently in verse 39. That they would understand that this incredible promise of grace, this incredible promise of God's love was not just for them. It was for all who would call on the Lord Jesus Christ. All who the Lord would call to himself and their families and even those who were considered outsiders. And that's a reminder for us as God's people this morning. If you're here and you are believing and rejoicing and trusting in the resurrection of your Savior, it's not just for you. It is for all who God would call to Himself, whether within your house or across your street or across the the globe, that we would pray for God to bring His people into His church. I began the sermon By quoting Paul's words about the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me finish by how he finishes what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, each and every one of us, perhaps even in these very moments or certainly over the course of our lives, have have reason to question and to doubt. I pray that you would remind us this morning of this wonderful truth that's true because you have made it true. You have accomplished the resurrection of our Savior. And as a result of this resurrection of our Savior, these wonderful truths that are ours in Christ encourage us, move us. To be people who not only trust and believe, but also obey joyfully, faithfully, in loving obedience to you. Father, I pray you would send us out with hope. The hope that we have. That because Jesus rose again from the grave, death has been swallowed up. And even though we may have to deal with the consequences of death and sin in this world until you return, we know that the war is over. So give us strength to be steadfast in the midst of the battles that we still must face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. He tells the people that he was writing to, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord on on the night on which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is it that we're doing every week as we come to the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our service? We're doing a couple things. One is we are remembering. We're reminding ourselves of these glorious truths. In a sense, every Sunday when we gather together to worship and as we gather around this table, we have a mini Good Friday and a mini Easter every week. Because we're remembering the the death of our Savior and His body and blood given for us. And we're also remembering that He conquered that death and He rose again from the grave. So we're encouraged as we proclaim His death and proclaim the resurrection and the power that has conquered sin and death forever. It's not simply to come and to remember. We're also coming to be strengthened in our faith. As we examine ourselves, as Paul says here, we confess uh, that we are unworthy to come. The only thing that makes us worthy is Jesus and His righteousness. And so we confess that we indeed are unworthy, but that Christ makes us worthy. That we believe and trust in Him. And so every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're once again putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and professing our faith, believing and trusting for the Holy Spirit to be at work. That as we eat and drink in faith, the Spirit takes what we're doing and strengthens us, gives us renewed hope and renewed faith so that as we go out, we might truly live as God's people for His glory. 
That's the reason why it's our denomination's policy to invite every Christian who is baptized, who's a baptized member of a Bible-believing church, made a profession of faith. It doesn't have to be here at Trinity, but a church that believes that God's word is true and that the gospel is by grace alone. So if that's you this morning, eat, drink, be reminded of this wonderful truth of God's gospel of grace. Be strengthened in your faith so that as we go out, we might truly serve and love and rejoice in Him this week. Let's pause and pray and ask Him to bless this table. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord's Supper. We thank You for giving it to us as a means of grace. We thank You that it's a remembrance. It helps us to remember what Christ went through. It helps us to remember his death on the cross. That it helps us to remember that he went into the tomb. It helps us to remember that he rose again. And that he's seated at your right hand even at this very moment as our very advocate. We thank you for this reminder. But we also, Father, thank you that this is a true means of grace. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to be powerfully at work That as we come believing and trusting in faith, the Spirit would be at work to empower us and strengthen us so that we might live for you this week. Help us, we pray, to that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.